1: I'm Pete Wright and I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Mission Impossible is over. Red light, green light. Simple game.
0: You serious? Always. It's much worse than you think. We're being ambushed. Abort, that's an order. They knew, they knew we were coming. Do you read me?
1: I don't care how he did it. I want to know why he did it. You're worried about me. Why you survived I'm sure we can find something I have that you need. I'm
0: such a No one sent me.
1: These guys are trained to be ghosts. Let's not waste time chasing after him. Just make him come to us. Find something that's personally important to him, and you squeeze. never seen me very upset
0: this tape will self-destruct in five seconds that gum always makes me think of what's the zebra striped gum fruit stripe fruit stripe gum it always makes me think of fruit stripe because (laughs) as it should (laughs) like the two the two fruit flavors
1: All right. I think that's what Tom was thinking about, too. Andy, Mission Impossible. We're doing
0: our Mission Impossible series. Can you believe it? Did you ever think we'd get here? It's been a Mission Impossible until now when it became Mission Possible. Possible. Yes.
1: (laughs) Uh, And soon it will be Mission Accomplished. I'm pretty Uh, excited about that. Yes. Yes. I wonder if that's going to be the last movie that they make. We'll know it's the end because it's called Mission Accomplished. Everybody,
0: just so you know, these episodes will self-destruct. (laughs) <laughs> as soon as you've listened to them,
1: uh, Brian De Palma, 1996. Brian De Palma, based on the screenplay by Div Cop and Robert Town. Uh, story by Cop and Steve Zalian. Kep. I believe it's Kep. Yeah, sure. Kep, too. But we, I call him Kep But that's how he likes We have it. a police joke. We have a police joke where I call him, Cap. Hey, uh, yeah, yeah. So that's what we oh, do. Oh, boy. Oh, boy.
0: Based on the TV show by Bruce Geller, which was one of your favorite shows.
1: It was not one of, of my all favorite times, but
0: I certainly,
1: <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> I certainly know I know the tropes. I've seen enough episodes to know that um, I was surprised in the movie when they killed Jim Phelps so early. That was a rug pull in this movie that we'll talk about that I did not expect because I I felt like Peter Graves was so inextricably linked to this character and it was famously one of the characters that didn't come in even in season one of mission impossible um he was the uh, main cast from you know two seasons two through the remaining seasons seven and then came back in the two season uh attempt at a reboot later um which i i I just loved. I loved that Leonard Nimoy was in it, but in my head, he was in it the whole time and not just two seasons right in the middle of its overall 60s run. Um, and if you'd asked me the two people who made it the longest in that series, I wouldn't have been able to tell you that they were Greg Morris and Peter Lupus because I didn't remember them at all. They just didn't go on to become as Famous as the other people in my head, um, certainly Peter Graves and Martin Landau and Leonard Nimoy, Leslie and Warren. Sam Elliott was in it, um, so it was it, it was a for me it was a really fun show that my dad adored, and so it was easy for him to kind of reintroduce that show to me when I was a kid that started coming out on VHS. Um, to kind of get into it. I did not watch it quite as zealously. I haven't seen every episode, but I've seen a a pretty good sampling, and I I think I know the tropes pretty well. It was also kind of a surprise when this movie came out, and we didn't get... Like, they invented this new character of Ethan Hunt, and and that that character has become so central to the story of Mission Impossible more than any of the
0: other earlier characters. Because... In the earlier ones, was Phelps the hunt role? Yeah, yeah, right.
1: He was more of an active participant. But there was still the tape sequence, right? The mission, should you choose to accept it kind of stuff. And they had all these other, you know, uh, they had the tech guy and the makeup artist for making masks and stuff. And, and that was not, none of that was Phelps. He was still on the, on the team, as far as I, my memory serves. But he was the leader of the team.
0: Well, I remember one of the big things that changed from the movie or from the TV series um, and and probably both of the TV series, because, I mean, it was in the the original series was 60s and the 70s, and then they rebooted it in the 80s. But this uh, was not really this was really kind of the story of Ethan Hunt. It wasn't about a team. And I remember that people who were fans of the show had some complaints about what they did to the whole concept of Mission Impossible, the TV series, because that was kind of a team show. And very quickly, once this film starts, the entire team is killed, except for Ethan Hunt, who has to then kind of go on. And, I mean, he kind of does, over the course of the franchise, build a team. Like, there are people like Luther comes back, or... but Simon Pegg's character, Benji, he kind of remains. And so we do see some of these uh, characters that kind of become part of the team as things go on. But it's interesting how that was such a shift from the whole idea of the series to the movies. And, um, you know, I don't know. I, I I know it caused some concern for fans of the show, but... Um, uh, again, as somebody who never watched the show, it really didn't affect me, but it was something that uh, I have appreciated as the thing has grown over the years that they have kind of tried to bring that in a little more.
1: Well, and it's funny, you know, I because I think the first the first movie does a successful job of. Uh, of uh, destroying the team as part of the De Palma intrigue, right? Like it feels very much like it's supposed to happen that way, even though it felt like a, like a rug pull. Like it felt like here's a thing that I thought I was going to get and now I'm not getting it. This is, this is, it becomes a team movie that is Tom Cruise's team. And that is the thing that this movie, the promise that this movie makes. Whatever you end up thinking of, uh, of how this movie ends, was it going to be a standalone thing? Like it didn't feel to me, I, I didn't walk out of Mission Impossible in 1996 thinking, I can't wait for Mission Impossible 2. I, I, at that point, was not expecting franchise material out of, you know, too much in the theater. So it was a surprise when Mission Impossible 2 came out and we had, you know, some of the, of, of the, uh or earlier characters really we just had tom and, and ving rames but you can start to feel like they're moving into in a direction of of you know building a, a new team and
0: that that played for me i, I couldn't even remember if ving rames was in the second one or not uh, for some reason i thought there were a few that he didn't end up being a part of but maybe i'm wrong there
1: well, there was there were some that that he played such a small part or like a walk on part at the end. But he was in he was uh, in the he was in, oh, he was he was in all of them. He was he's oh. credited in all of them. OK. Yeah. So it'll be interesting because my memory of uh, of some of these movies is pretty is pretty shallow. And so it'll it'll be
0: interesting to see. But Ving Rames is credited in every one of the movies. Gotcha. OK. Well, so then to that end, he may be the only character that returns in all of the films, along with Ethan Hunt. Because it's not until Mission
1: Impossible 3 that we get Simon Pegg, and he rides it all the way out to the end, right? He's credited all the way through Mission Dead Reckoning Part 2. The the other character would be um, his wife, uh, played by Michelle Monaghan in 3 and 4. She's not represented in 5, but she is back in 6, and nobody knows what's going on in 7 and 8.
0: Well, and I think in four, it's really isn't for the one where she's in it, but it's only like in the last scene yeah. where, he, where he's watching her from afar sort of thing. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's it's another one of those like just almost an Easter egg. Well, and that was really funny because watching this film again, I was thinking about like, okay, when does he meet his wife? Was this, is this all before this film or is it between this film and the next film? Like now I'm, yeah. I'm going to have to um, really kind of pay attention to the storyline because this film certainly does its share of setting up a little romantic triangle intrigue between Ethan and then uh, Claire, uh, Claire Phelps, who is Jim's wife and Quote, widow for a time in the film, uh, played by Emmanuel baird Uh, and that's, uh, it's an interesting element that is kind of brought in here that is one of the elements of the film that I, 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 I don't know, I always find it a little weak the way that that relationship kind of develops because it just seems so far fetched that she's acting that way immediately after her husband has died. And, uh, you know, I don't know, I kind of struggle with it. Um, I don't know how did you feel about that Wait wait wait, wait. acting in acting what wait like when she gets back and is and, and is with Tom She's back acting, in their hideout she, for the first time Yeah there's like clearly there's some romantic draw between her and Ethan where uh you know she kind of gives him that uh, there's a point where she kind of gives him a, a kiss on his cheek which seems a little more romantic than French, I guess you'd say, or European, where, you know, even after she withdraws and goes into the other room, he kind of like touches his cheek like, did that just happen? And then later, when uh, she's, I don't know, he comes back after having just had his uh, discovery that Jim was still alive, and he comes back to the safe house, and she's kind of sleeping in that uh, corner. And he comes up to her and, um, you know, puts his face, his hand on her cheek and she kind of holds it and starts kissing it. And so there is this romantic draw that she's portraying toward him that. Uh, I don't know. It was just a, it was an element of the story that certainly is there. I don't know. Did you? What did well, you think of Andy, I, I have to I have to just forgive me. I have to correct you on some cultural stuff
1: here. You said that that this felt more romantic than French. And I just need to disabuse you of that to the French. There's nothing different. If it's French, it's romantic because they own they own romance in France. So everything she does is by <laughs> definition. <laughs> romantic now uh to your point i i my read on it was that she was just playing ethan the whole time and that it was all leading up to this ultimate betrayal because she knew phelps wasn't dead the whole time uh, that's possible. In, and, and there might be another movie in which it's a it's a romantic uh uh comedy where it's the the trio of claire and Jim and Ethan and it's all about their dynamic because you're right and I think even in that opening sequence when Ethan leans over her and that's that awesome dutch angle of him and her and is she dead or is she drugged and is she going to come back clearly Ethan has a crush on her like i'm not dis- i'm not saying that that's not true it feels to me like he's really playing it that he is has the hots for Claire it feels like Claire and Jim are using Ethan's feelings against him to try to keep him off off the scent and keep him moving in the direction they need him moving
0: it's but it's a strange thing hey honey i'm gonna be pretending that i'm dead and i need you to woo him to like why what to what avail like it just seems like i i never feel like that's actually being used in a way to misdirect him well and that's i guess part of my frustration with it and this is, but interesting. is it
1: because he's too smart right uh, no uh, he's too uh, cagey that's the thing that's great about this movie is that he actually is kind of a step ahead almost everywhere, both like physically running away from the, you know, explosions of fish tanks, uh, but also, you know, also to just
0: stay on the path that Jim wants him on. Yeah, but I, I don't know. There is this element of this relationship, and it was there was even a a, a whole opening sequence of this film that had included much more of a love triangle between these three characters that ended up getting removed. I think uh, I believe it was George Lucas, of all people, who told De Palma that uh, he felt that it was pushing the film down a direction that it just it was setting the audience up for the wrong type of movie and so they removed all of that but i can't help but feel like there is this strange element going on in this film that does feel like a love triangle and even building toward the end when it's like why does jim suddenly shoot his wife Uh, like that there's no logical reason for that especially because it seems like they had been kind of working together to kind of do this whole scam with ethan and then suddenly he shoots her. And I'm like, okay, why? The only reason is he must have felt there was this something going on between Ethan and and Claire. Like, that to me is a plot element that is very confusing. And then, especially once you throw in the idea that uh, Ethan has this wife somewhere, I guess, and again, I just need to see how that plays out over the next couple films. At what point do I feel like that that marriage actually happened? Because I, w- I can't imagine it would have been before this film
1: yeah no i totally agree and i think to your point like having yeah i can see the world in which that love triangle exists inside this movie because it makes the 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 sort of end, like where the relationship ultimately ends up, it it makes it more powerful when Jim shoots her, demonstrating that he wants to hurt Ethan because of that betrayal to maybe their friendship because of whatever. The dynamic is different when he shoots his own wife if he knows that they are in a relationship together, that they Ethan and Claire are in in a subversive relationship together. And I'm I recognize I'm sort of reaching to make it to make it whole in my head but i do find that i can see the sort of lenticular postcard of that of, of the story of her using ethan enough to to make it at least a, at least not a huge hole in in um, you know in the way i look at it
0: yeah it's, it it just ends up being my probably my biggest single frustration with the film is that whole element and uh it's it's always a sticking point for me because i i never i never feel it makes sense and in the context of what we have with the story i just am always scratching my head a bit there's just one scene in in the movie that i just don't like at all
1: and it's not and it, it demonstrates sort of where the movie is at its strongest is when they're actually at work, right? When there's intrigue going on, right? And it's when they try to capture the human moments, uh, like the comedy of human moments that I really struggle with. And I feel like it is the, the sequence when they're sitting at the table and they're talking about the mission and then Tom says, can we get an espresso machine or a cappuccino machine in here? And they have that exchange and it is one of the, like, it, it is just a cringeworthy bit of performance, and I
0: can't stand it. Does
1: that ever stand out
0: to you? (laughs) Well, let me just say, there's an element of me that is a little happy that the entire first team dies, because I really struggle with all of them. Uh, Emmanuel Baird as Claire, is in there. You've got uh, Kristen Scott-Thomas, who I absolutely love in everything that she does. Um, I feel like she's on uh, autopilot throughout this film, like she never quite seems in it and so that's frustrating for me. Emilio Estevez, uh, uncredited, and I'm not exactly sure why, but he plays Jack, and he, uh, you know, I, of all of them, I suppose he I'm most fine with. And uh, but then he gets killed by like who the hell puts spikes in the top of the elevator shaft like that? You know, like I, I just that's <laughs> an issue. Like,
1: yeah, uh, like I there was some sort of that. part of us.
0: Yeah, it was weird. That's that wasn't good. Yeah. And then Ingeborg Knight who is Hannah, is just kind of like, who? You know, it's like, that's the person I'm always like, oh, I forgot there was another person in this. So it's, it's a team that, uh, like that whole opening, I just feel like that is part of my element with it. Uh, same thing that you're saying about the Espresso machine. Like that whole team just doesn't feel like a cohesive team. It feels very much put together just so you can kill some people off with kind of bit players.
1: That's the the struggle, but that's also the handoff, right? Like, that's the thing that motivates our principal character, Ethan Hunt, into action, into a new direction. And I, I think that's all... You know, it's all fine, mostly because it's pretty quick. Like, it's one mission in the film, and then it's over, right? Because everybody's dead, and Ethan is motivated, and there's mystery afoot. And I like that part. To your point, I think I—I I, I mean, I love Kristen Scott-Thomas, and I think she's she's just wonderful. I agree with you a little bit. There's there's kind of a parade of famous people going on here. I would not have been able to tell you Hannah's uh, name because she was— <laughs> Uh, disposed of. The character was disposed of so quickly. I, and I actually had... I, I didn't have a problem with Emmanuel Bayhardt being the one that ends up sticking around with Ethan for most of the film. And I love Vanessa Redgrave so much. Like, I think Vanessa Redgrave oh, as Max is a... Yeah a wonderful sort of antagonistic foil for him. It's really great. But the biggest piece is I love the new team so much. I love Ving Rhames and Jean Renault in this movie, even though Jean Renault is actually kind of not on the team. Uh, betrayal. Um, I just love those guys so much that it feels, it, it just feels good that it's like we hand off one existing team for a new team and I'm fine with that because it still ends up being kind of a team thing.
0: Yeah. I, I think that there is, something with the new team that works better although even to that end like jean renault never quite seems like he always seems suspect and so i don't know if they were intending the surprise turn that he actually isn't a good guy to be a surprise at all because he just it, it always feels he always seems designed to be a bad guy
1: Well, yeah, but I mean, that's the setup, right, is that here we go. Ethan Hunt has to go work with guys who have been deemed bad. Right? Like they're disavowed agents for some reason, and now Ethan has to find a way to try. Of course one of them's gonna turn. They're set up, like it's written on the tin. The big surprise is which one. Um I don't know if
0: it's a surprise though. That's what I'm saying. Well,
1: that, well that's what I was gonna say is that I, I, I think that <laughs> that's the that's the the biggest hang up is the fact that you know from the moment they're on the train that Jean Renault is the squirrely one. And I think they're my, my hunch is that they're trying to make Ving Rhames' character of, of Luther more mysterious and standoffish and make that something that tells at least a portion of the audience, okay, maybe he's the one—he could be the one who's going to be the big betrayer. And the loudmouth Jean Reno is going to be the guy who ends up being by his side. Honestly, it could have gone either way, and I think we could have had the same conversation. But, like, But I like both of those guys.
0: Yeah, I I just, I feel, I don't know. Jean Reno, I always enjoy in films, but I just don't think this is, maybe he's just not given as much for me to uh, really enjoy what he's doing here. Like, I just don't feel like he gets to bring much to the table here. Whereas Ving Rhames, I I think has a little more and maybe even in such small parts in some of the later films, uh, there's something about this franchise that obviously he's enjoying because he does keep returning.
1: And I was—I admit—I was, I, I admit, I was uh, a bit bummed when Renault uh, uh, didn't didn't come back because I feel like you know we didn't get anything like we get from him in something like Ronan exactly, which is uh, another one of my favorite movies that actually
0: uses him very well to that effect. Yes, so, there you yes, go. yes, yes. All right. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the convoluted story a little bit? Because I know this was a huge complaint about the film when it came out, and this was one of those films that underwent a lot of writing and rewriting and. Over the course of trying to put the script together, you know, is Steve's Alien, David Kep were involved. They both ended up away from it. Robert Town was brought in. Kep came back later to do some rewrites. There was a point, apparently, uh, Willard uh, Huyck and Gloria Katz, who we've talked about a number of times over the course of the show, they apparently also had worked on a script. But then, when they finally went into pre-production. They didn't really have the script finished, and so they were just trying to design action sequences and figure stuff out. And because of all that, by the time we ended up with the finished film, some people felt like this plot was um, a little too convoluted and one of its biggest complaints. I mean, how does the actual structure of the story end up feeling to you as you watch it? I'm not going to disagree with any of that. And yet, I feel like I've seen it enough
1: times that I no longer worry about those things. That I, what I'm looking at are the action beat to beat to beat to beat. And kind of celebrating, frankly, the fact that I can go back and watch this movie and see how the scenes up front in the movie are the scenes that are flashback when they rebuild the intrigue, the fact that, you know, Phelps shoots himself. If you go back and look at the little frame, you can see his hand is turned shooting toward, you know, toward himself. It's not somebody else's gun. Like those little things could have been faked so easily. And uh, it feels like actually what De Palma ended up doing was building a movie that you can to some extent, retrace back to the beginning and watch how it all unfolded. And I want to celebrate that because I think, for the in large part, the movie does that well. Now, that is dealing with the team intrigue, the the actual <laughs> acquisition of the knock list, the non official cover list, and the fact that they have these two lists. I I talked to uh, uh, talked to a, a friend who works in in government and. Uh, about this movie and said, yeah, it's it, that list would have been like an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> Nobody has I I would have had high enough faith in in this fancy technology that 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 would have been quite,
0: like they over they overdid it. I wonder if it um, if they had the same complaints about the email system in 1996. Yes,
1: the right. The user I'm list. just glad that they took up like a full third of the screen saying file access or internet or, right? <laughs> and they were just using Netscape. Oh my god, that was brilliant. That was a really fun bit of throwback. Um, and white it looked like some variant of the zip disk. You remember zip disks? Those oh, purple yeah. disks? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Felt like that, Zip or, or, and or jazz these were little jazz. Yeah, all those. Yeah. Yeah. These yeah. could have been little optical discs in a in a case in a carriage. They were um, fancy, very fancy, very fancy, very fancy. So,
0: do we get to see Ethan Hunt be a magician later in the franchise? <laughs> oh, doing more sleight of hand? I don't remember. I don't remember. <laughs> we'll have to that keep was, our eyes open fun. for that. Yeah, yeah that the Ethan
1: Hunt sleight of hand count. Um, so, uh, back to your question is it is the story like too clever by half but you know probably but ultimately i end up tracking the acquisition of the knock list to max on the train and uh, all of the cell phone like signal jamming and all of that that ends up making sense to me like i i don't know i don't know what is it how does it hit you
0: am i way too forgiving no, I, I suppose that's where I land too, because, and maybe it's just because, like, there's the difference between seeing it for the first time in the theater and trying to remember what all the pieces of the story were, and now having seen it a number of times over the course of several decades, and I I just have a better handle on the story and, like, the fake knock list, the real knock list, and, and kind of the whole understanding of all the different puzzle pieces. And so I end up tracking the story a lot better now. But again, I just wonder if that is just the result of having seen it so many times. Yeah. But I I just don't find it to be that confusing of a story.
1: Yeah, I don't think I do either. I think it's I I think complaining about it is just like, uh, you know what? Watch it again. And and that's true of so many spy movies
0: uh, that. I I know that's not really a fault. That's an interesting thing with the complaint, period, because you want these stories when it is kind of a spy movie, especially when it's called Mission Impossible, to feel like there are a lot of threads that you have to track and you have to kind of weave this fine line. And I mean, geez, we've done a, a, a John lacare series on this show and talk about a, a person who crafted spy stories that were fairly convoluted. And you really do need to make sure you're paying attention so that you can track all the different threads and how everything connects. And and to a certain extent, I guess that's where I land with this is I feel like, you know what, they, it, the story feels like it fits into the genre properly. And so I, I guess that's why I feel I'm OK with it.
1: Well, and that's why I think it's important to at least shout that out for this movie, because once, it, once we move from this movie to the others, I end up feeling like this Mission Impossible is not about spycraft, which this movie celebrates, right, fantasy spycraft, to uh, impossible stunts and action sequences that vastly outweigh the level of, of like search and intrigue to To the movie, so I, that that's something that I'm really considering because it's been a long time since I've watched this movie, the first one in the series. I usually go back to the later films in the series because they're such spectacle. And watching this one reminded me that this comes that the whole series comes from you know a, a fun fantasy spycraft series, and it kind of evolves away from that.
0: Well, yeah, and it'll be interesting to see because I mean, even like the, Martin Landau, who was in the original show, as we said. They asked him about this. I mean, most of the cast who had been around for the TV series was pretty negative about the movie because things we've talked about. They made Jim Phelps a villain. They uh, killed off the team. And then Martin Landau said this. Um, uh, It was basically an action adventure movie and not mission. Mission was a mind game. The ideal mission was getting in and getting out without anyone ever knowing we were there. So the whole texture changed. I think that speaks to kind of the idea that we have with this. And, And we do have some of them where it does feel like there is some of this getting in getting out sort of element within the story but largely it feels like and and from this point forward they really are moving down to a thing of like let's chase the bad guy let's deal with these trades with these villains and it becomes it does start taking on kind of a James Bond sort of feel more so than a story about secret missions
1: yeah and it definitely becomes more about that sort of human Level of betrayal, not just like gamesmanship, but here we, here are two teams that trust one another, and they're going to go against one another. And that was the original Mission Impossible. And this one is here are two teams that trust one another, and within each of those teams are more questions of trust and betrayal. And this it feels to me like the 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 spy thriller version of what we complained about in some recent films talking about zombie where eventually it ends up being stories about how mean humans are to each other and no longer about the zombies because we we figure that part out so now let's talk about raiders and bandits and guys with baseball bats with with you know barbed wire on them and that's kind of what we're doing here right it's like oh now i have to be afraid of my friends that's the the parallel for me in this movie and and you know, for some reason, it works better, but only because they get it out of the way early. I don't recall this level of kind of internal team struggle. You know, once Tom Cruise and Ving Rams have a relationship together, they stick it out through the duration of the movie. Same thing with Simon Peck. Like, we have a team that I feel like I count on when I think about Mission Impossible that exists to do things together.
0: They, they busted up with Jeremy Renner, but... Well, I, I will say, what they've decided to do, though, with the franchise as a whole is constantly have internal issues, though. Like the IMF, there are always issues with people in the IMF, and suddenly these organizations don't trust each other, and it's constantly, I mean... Yeah. You know, that's the whole thing when you get to Ghost Protocol, Rogue Nation, Fallout. It's like uh, Angela Bassett's character, like, you know, they are working actively as a different organization to stop the IMF and stuff. And so it becomes they They kind of keep this level going, and so it's interesting, like starting right here, you know you already have uh you know Kittredge as this character who's you know there is this internal level of issue that they're trying to deal with as they're trying to track down the mole within the organization, and I feel like that becomes such a huge part of this franchise throughout, and I wonder if that speaks actually to. I, again, I don't know enough about the series, but it was 60s, 70s, so there's definitely this Cold War vibe with the show, and I wonder if it's just kind of the nature of the times in which it was made. By the time the movie was made, the Cold War wasn't a thing, and so they were looking at different things going on in the world and looking internally, things like that. Like what? Where are we looking now for these these stories to take place? Yeah, I think that's
1: a really good point. The fact that you know that wherever there is mistrust, as long as we aren't united against an enemy, then we'll unite against a new enemy, and if that enemy is inside, so much the so much the better for you know the story, which is which again is is fine. I I I I, I think so much of this movie hangs on the charisma that Tom Cruise brings to Ethan Hunt, and I'm okay following that. I'm really okay following that.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, as outside of the team, uh, Kittredge does play a pretty big part, and interestingly, he is coming back in seven and eight in both of the Dead Reckoning films. How excited are you about that? Were you excited about that? Well, I th- I think that's very interesting. Um, especially because one of my favorite scenes in this film is really the the um, aquarium scene between Hunt and Kittridge. The way that uh, De Palma shoots that is there. It's so uh interesting, like with such interesting Dutch angles. I mean, we're, I can't wait to talk a little bit more about what De Palma is bringing to this film, because I just think there's insane style going on that he's throwing in. But you get these great Dutch angles that really play up the uh, suspicions that each of these characters has toward the other As uh, Hunt is looking around the restaurant and realizing or revealing to us that he recognizes everybody in the restaurant as other IMF agents that he had seen throughout the night and finding out that Kittredge actually has pinned him as the mole. And so you get this really fantastic conversation between the two of them that builds to the point where. Uh, Hunt throws the gum at the aquarium glass and blows the all the glass out of this place and floods the place and makes his escape it just i mean like that sort of scene is exhilarating and I think Kittredge plays a really interesting pseudo villain of the story, and I love that 's something I really love about him as a character is he 's the director of the i m f He's seen kind of as the antagonist for Ethan, but that's only because he thinks Ethan is actually the mole, and it builds toward that great moment on the train when K- Kittredge actually brings down Max. What did you think of uh, Henry, Henry, how do you say his name, Henry Cer- C- Zerny? Cherney? I think it's Cherney, yeah, but I'm, you know, that's what he allows me to call him that, so yes, that's
1: right, right, you know. Since you don't know better, let's go with that. Okay. I uh, I feel like it's it is a great representation. Speaking of that sort of um, the transition to the sixties, um, Kittredge represents that sort of uh, spycraft cynicism that it, that comes into the the storytelling, and that is like he's the pivot point around the the who do you, question of who do you trust. And I love that scene so much. It's incredibly well written. Like the dialogue is is fantastic. And the Kittredge turn when he's trying to, quote, debrief, uh, but ultimately, you know, once he reveals that he's not going to get away from this conversation without acknowledging and confronting Tom or uh, Ethan, because Ethan does know that there is more going on and recognizes all the agents and the architecture of all the agents is actually displayed perfectly for us. Um, All the little flashbacks of recognition are perfect and we're in the movie. All of that is such a fantastic turn for him like it just it it reminds me just how much of a jerk bureaucrats are right like (laughs) but in a way that feels good he's given something for tom to go up against and also with right because it's not he's just trying to prove to the imf that he is not a criminal that's what he has that's the whole plan is i just have to convince this Idiot, this guy, this bureaucrat, that I'm not the bad guy, but there are bad guys out there. And I'm in for those kinds of stories. So I, I think uh, Henry Cherney is fantastic. I, it is one of the things that I am most excited about for the Dead Reckoning 1 and 2 that he's actually credited in both movies, indicating to me maybe he's got a part of some significance. And after having all these guys from, you know, Alec Baldwin and, and uh, Anthony Angela Hopkins. Bassett, like Anthony Hopkins, like, yeah. Come in, though, in that chair. I, I think it's fantastic that we end up coming back around to
0: Henry Cherney somehow in this movie. I can't wait. Yeah, it will be interesting to see how he's used uh, in those films. And, uh, he's, and like
1: his, what do you think of his just general vibe, his performance? Like he is so quotable because of just how he performs this thing.
0: Yeah, and I think that's exactly why I love him in this role because he's a great foil or Ethan to kind of go up against over the course of the film and uh, you know I, I like anything from like that that dinner scene as I or that scene when they're at the aquarium to like I, I love the way that the scene plays out when Ethan and his new team are breaking into the CIA headquarters and he's there uh Kittredge is there in another room with Dale die who's kind of his uh, right hand man and uh, only to discover you know too late that hunt has actually broken in and stolen the real knock list and then ends up like uh you know sending the guy uh that (laughs) to where siberia or wherever Uh, you know i don't know i just i loved the way that he played the character and i i'm i'm excited also to see how he's used in dead reckoning yeah me too and it's been fun to kind
1: of watch him, like to go from this movie. The next time I saw him, I'm sure the next time I saw him was uh, the ice storm in, in 97. But the, then he goes on to clear and present danger. That was and before this. That was before this. That's maybe that that's 94. the connection I was making. It was that it felt like he was going from one bureaucrat to another and it was the same guy. Like it was so easy for me to to transpose his general authoritarian vibe he, he owns those kinds of roles so
0: and he was just in scream six yeah yeah he was the you know, doctor. doctor yeah so uh, so he's great um but i, I do you want to talk about any of the other cast or or can we talk about brian de palma we can talk about whatever you want to talk it's your special day andy we can talk about whatever you want to talk about i just want to talk about brian de palma a little bit because uh he's such an exciting filmmaker and he he is a filmmaker who realizes that there's more to making a movie than just cutting back and forth between two characters in in kind of standard ways and just set up the camera here and then we'll do a reverse shot here. He actually finds ways to to play with the the camera and do things in such interesting ways. And we've talked about him a number of times on the show. I mean, he loves doing um, he doesn't in this film, but he loves doing, uh, you know, split screens where you've got two things happening at once. Uh, he loves doing split diopter, which he, we do. Which get he a does lot of times. do in this. Movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Um, we get some fantastic, as I already mentioned, some fantastic Dutch angles that he really uses to great advantage over the course of the story to just shift the 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 vibe of a scene to suddenly give us a little more suspicions. Also, some interesting POV use um, when we're looking through people's eyes that are. Using the special glasses, for example, that they have, the camera glasses, those POVs of the glasses also are used in interesting ways, uh, plot point wise, like when John Voight as Jim Phelps, when he gets shot on the bridge, but he's actually, you know, pretending to shoot himself. And he's having to stage this whole thing through his glasses, knowing people will be watching in a way that... It looks like he's shot. He doesn't see the shooter. He's got all this blood. And then later when we see him performing it, we actually see how he's doing it in a way to keep his glasses from capturing any of the stuff that he doesn't want people to see. And so I don't know. I just I found the way that um, that De Palma was playing with camera throughout to be just incredibly exciting. I I loved all of the the design of scenes. So what did you think about De Palma as the choice for director for this? Well I I I
1: think it was great and you know I'm pretty hot and cold on on diploma but uh, this one this is one I really like a lot and I I think to that point that POV point I I Kept thinking of the the sequence where they first go in to intercept uh, uh, Galitzin, where they're at the big fancy political event, and Tom. It's the first time Tom Cruise. We know he's going to put on the the makeup because we've just seen an interview of his target, and it's obviously Tom Cruise in the makeup. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but we see him on yeah. on the screen, and so you know later, our entire introduction to Tom Cruise is through that POV, walking through and being introduced to famous people, and eventually. Kristen Scott Thomas, and we see him continuing to look around. And that shot is is really great. Like it's a great way to introduce us to the intrigue of makeup that is such a standard, you know, kind of Mission Impossible trope now. So I, I love it. The other thing that I, I don't think you said was macro. I mean, the, the number of yes, shots yes, that yes, go yes, in yes. super close to eyes and sweat and glasses and, you know, let's give the viewer a sense of detail that normally we we don't get on these kinds of movies. And I think it was uh, it, it is used with such style. I mean, this thing is practically a comic book, the way it's portrayed. And And I'm here for All of it.
0: My favorite use of that actually is a a funny one, but it's when Claire is sitting next to William Donlow. That's the guy who goes into the room, right? Yeah. Uh, When she's sitting next to him, like in the cafeteria, and she, like, I don't know, doses something in his coffee with her pen, but then she puts something on his back and it's like this little tab to track him but I just love the way that plays because she does it so covertly and it's almost like he s- senses something has happened and he just, but she moves her hand down in time and then he looks over at her and she just looks at him and smiles and he just thinks pretty girl smiling at him. And the way that that whole scene plays, I don't know. I just, I, I find it a little bit of like uh perfectly magical, the way that everything is timed with all of that. And you get that macro shot of the tracker on his back. It's just like, those little uh, bits, I think, are just played so well throughout this one. Yeah,
1: I think so too. I, you know, and in so far as De Palma is not somebody I think of as doing heavy effects movies, this this movie actually holds together in terms of the way they architect some of some very early, you know, compositing and virtual sets and CG artifacts that they throw into this movie. So, I mean, I feel like I notice it. But it it doesn't uh, there there's nothing in here that really takes me out of the movie. What do you think of how he handles some of these um, some of these pieces?
0: Well, again, I think he's a filmmaker that knows how to use the tools. So like we we see things that feel authentic, but I think that he plays with the visual effects in ways that help us buy it. Like there's a scene where toward the end of the film, you see, Jim sitting in that back cabin like the baggage car on the train and Claire is talking to him and it looks like John Voight but then he reaches up grabs his face and pulls it off revealing Ethan Hunt underneath and the only time that I look at that and I say I can tell it's a visual effect is the actual the way the face looks as the mask is being pulled and stretched and pulled off but before that it looked like John Voight afterward it looks like tom cruise like they do a great job of capturing john Voigt's essence on the mask before it's pulled off it's just when it's coming off i'm like it's a little wonky but it's it's never done in a way where i am too distracted by it and i don't know if that falls to the visual effects or like to rob botin who you know we love as a as a makeup artist uh, makeup effects um and the way that he actually crafted the masks to begin with
1: yeah, and and I think that's a that's a really good point. That is the uh, the principal sort of CG human interaction reveal that that you that you notice because it's in a dramatic sequence. Not to take away anything from the massive train sequence that was all done, you know, with a combination of blue screen and miniatures and and you know wind generators and all of that stuff, which is exceptional it's just an exceptional action f- sequence i really like the the train stuff the the high speed train stuff i think it all plays um but the the stuff the it's the smaller things that i that i notice the other one that that feels of its time is the knife falling through <laughs> falling from the vent to the to the table below yeah it's just a little shiny it just reminds me of some of those early toaster graphics that that uh, that I, I feel like were are kind of highlighted in you know uh, work done on the early amigas and and next generation type you know compositing effects and so that stands out to me a little bit the texture isn't quite finished but the rest of the movie is just really really strong and um and so i i mean i love it and and we get some principal stunt work from from tom early on that that demonstrate what a what a physical actor he is and is going to continue to be that obviously the repelling scene where he falls and doesn't touch the floor is extraordinary and hurts my core
0: well and you know i think that that speaks to this is really the first time that Tom Cruise and Paula Wagner had decided to come together and produce. You know, this was the, you know the the story that they chose to tell with their first time working together as producers to make this film. And I think that one of the big things that Tom Cruise really wanted to do, aside from being the lead character, of course, but really in a in an action film like this, this was his chance to really push himself and start saying. I want to do as many of my own stunts as I can. And when you see all that stuff of him hanging there, it really is him doing all that stuff and figuring out the counterweights and whatever he had to do to make it work so that he could hang properly from that, that suspension line coming down. And it's just, I mean, it's so exciting to see. And that's, in a, in also just speaking to kind of like the sound design, in a film that's designed... In a scene that's designed to be as quiet as possible, because you can't have the decibels over a certain point, they do such a great job of making the sound in there, like just room tone with such small, subtle sounds that you hear as he's moving and everything. It's just, it's exceptionally crafted, and that should stand out as one of the great uh, action sequences, because... It's so exciting to see the way they do it and the up and down and everything that he does, the accidental almost drop, the sweat dripping. When I always struggle a little bit about, like, how does his hand fit in such a narrow space to catch that sweat? But it's, it's all such a well-crafted scene that I don't have too much of an issue. And so by the time we get to the knife falling, I really just don't worry about it too much because I just feel like it has been such a thrill to kind of watch that scene take place that I'm okay with that. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. My biggest issues with it is the fact that they have this whole pretend fire truck in and out (laughs) as their way to get into the CIA headquarters. I'm just like, that's the part I always roll my eyes at. I'm like, seriously, is like, is this really how, like, I don't think that that's how the CIA, that how they're so loose that a fire truck could just pull up. And like, I always struggle a little bit with that.
1: You know what? I don't even think about that part. For me, it's the uh, it's the alarm bit, like make the make the right alarm go off. And the guards like, oh, now it's it's level 21. Let's go in there now. It just feels like I don't know. It just feels like there are more sensors in there than just a flashing light. Like something is going to they have cameras. Maybe there's a camera that shows there's fire there. So there's a little bit of that extension of, of disbelief to get them into the CIA. But so what? Because once they're there, it's fantastic. Is the, Do you think, is there a world in this massive multiverse, Andy, where the CIA at Langley
0: is crawling with rats in the vents? <laughs> that was... Another thing, I, I wrote in my notes, and it's just like, from the time I first watched this, I've been rolling my eyes at the fact that there's this convenient rat walking through the air ducts <laughs> in this particular um, film in this moment in time. Always makes me roll my eyes. Uh, it's very much uh, Chekhov's a rat in the vents. That, Is uh, it just really even Chekhov's
1: rat? Because it, we never had the rat before. It was never introduced before. It's like De Palma's rat.
0: Yeah, it's just like let's just put this rat here because we need a reason Magical for rat. the drop to happen. It just a little yeah, it's a little wonky. I, I crack up though in that brief moment where Krieger drops Hunt, he has time to reach over, kill the rat, and then grab the rope before it touches the floor.
1: Because he's a superhero. Krieger's a superhero uh, antagonist. Yeah. Spy spy boy. So, uh, yeah, overall, I, you know, the movie plays for me. Is it a perfect film? Uh, n- n- no, but I, watching it this time, I was super satisfied because I feel like it was more of a movie than I even remembered it being. Like, I had a really good time watching this movie, and it reminded me just how much I love all these movies. So,
0: um, it plays. As far as the stuff with the train, just talking about, like, the, the final sequence, because, I mean, this film has... Sure some really great sequences and obviously the cia break into langley is uh you know one of the most exciting ones you already talked a little bit about the stuff on the train but i just have to say how thrilling it is to kind of watch the bits on the train and i know they had to get like this massive fan to kind of create that i think it was like 140 mile per hour winds that they have blowing at them as they're kind of climbing across the top of the train I love the way it looks because it feels so authentic watching uh, Tom Cruise and John Voight climbing on this train and just like being blown all over the place. It it just is a thrill to kind of watch the two of them, you know, deal with, you know, maneuvering up there. I, I think that's an exciting way to kind of play that whole scene. It's one of those first sequences where you hear, like, the legendary stories of Tom Cruise's
1: physical prowess, which is, like, he gets flipped up over on the train in the wind on that set and jumping from the helicopter, smashing into the back of this train, and he does it over and over and over again. And the stories are like, this guy is covered in bruises and cuts, and he's bleeding. And after every single take, he goes over and he watches the 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 playback, and then he goes back up and says, let's do it again, and does it over and over and over again. And that has become part of his, like his narrative. Like that's the he he is he's the Baba Yaga of the uh, he's the John Wick right
0: of making movies. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, I he's think legend now, right? That's what they call now, him. Right? pretty much it's I mean it is a thrill to kind of see you know some of the stuff at the end with the red light green light the helicopter stuff some speaking of visual effects some of the explosion in the in the channel looks a little wonky but uh, none of it so much that it ever takes me out of the film I still have a fun time with it and enjoy it and I also laugh about the way that it always plays on the news, like, a helicopter suddenly lost altitude and ended up inside <laughs> <I know>. the tunnel. <laughs> Flying inside the tunnel. And and they don't talk about the fact that it's going to
1: take six months at least to rebuild the parts of the tunnel that were destroyed <laughs> by this fiery yeah. aircraft explosion inside of it. And, oh, also, everything's flooded. And, oh, also... Like, it's just... It was fantasy. Fantasy spy movie. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. There will be a few faces that we see... Uh, later other than kittredge who we've already talked about but uh, we'll just have to keep an eye out because one of max's people ends up coming back as uh, a contact later and i'm not sure if it's the same character or not but i know um is it the diehard one i don't think it's the diehard one i think it's the other one right there's the one with the long hair is the diehard one like he's one of the yes uh the bad guys Is it him? Or is it the short hair guy who was sitting next to Max actually on the train? No, it is the diehard one. Okay, so the diehard one, Andreas uh, Wisniewski, he actually comes back. He's Max's henchman here, and he will be back in the uh, fourth film, Ghost Protocol, as the contact.
1: Oh, outstanding. But
0: I wonder if it's the same character or not. We'll have to try to remember that when we get to Ghost Protocol. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, very much. The fog's contact. Yeah. So he goes from Max's companion to the fog's contact. Because he's not sitting with Max. Like, he's on the train. We see him yeah. because he's the one that Kittredge sees, and Kittredge starts following him to the bathroom, and that's when they're knocking on the bathroom where uh, Luther is hiding. And but, So he goes off. But when when they are at the end, when we see Kittredge and Luther um, taking max into custody she's sitting with her other henchman not yes. this guy i don't short-haired think. Haired, short-haired, yeah, guy short-haired henchman not long-haired henchman mm-hmm. so this guy might have gotten away and now he's the fox contact we'll see yeah well it's you know it's a whole industry look at his <laughs> linkedin profile Hey, what did you think of the music here? So this was, uh, so Alan Silvestri had actually been contracted to write the music. And then um, after recording like 20 minutes or so, uh, Tom Cruise, who again was producer, um, canned him and brought Danny Elfman on, who only had a few weeks to do the score. And so largely it's his own stuff. But of course, he does use some of uh, Lalo Schifrin's original theme from the TV show. Uh, But what do you think of the score and how it works in, in the film? I, you know the the notable stuff for me was the
1: was the Schifrin <laughs> original theme, Always right? Will and. Be, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things actually that the, that the movies tend to have some fun with, right? We'll hear other ver- variants of how they int- continue to introduce and evolve that theme uh, and and play with it. Um, for me, it's fine, but I'm an Elfman fan. Like, I like the the music that Danny Elfman produces. This doesn't feel over the top like comic booky. It feels in universe to me. This score more than some of his other stuff uh, definitely uh, shows, you know, just ha- what a, a sort of a adaptable uh, composer he is because he has such a tone when working with like Tim Burton. Um, And this doesn't feel like that to me. This feels like bespoke to this great spy action movie. I think it plays. Do you are you in the bag for Elfman like this too? this version of Elfman?
0: Oh, I love Elfman and, and this score, you know, while I don't think it's my favorite of the Mission Impossible scores, what I do love about it is that he, he does kind of craft some great themes for it. And in particular, my favorite piece of music in the film is actually the one where Phelps has revealed that he's alive to, to Ethan in the train station. And then they're in like a little coffee shop and. This is after the point where Ethan has found the Bible that has the stamp for the Drake Hotel in it, realizing that Phelps is Job and that he's actually the mole. Um, And so as Phelps is talking about how Kittredge is the mole, you've got that fantastic scene of Ethan putting all the puzzle pieces together, talking about Kittredge. But in his head, he's replaying all the scenes that we've seen before with. Phelps. And so he's he's piecing the whole story together as to how Phelps did all of this in a way where you don't realize. And that the score there is just, it's a fantastic track. I love the way that it plays. And I think Elfman captures that moment well. I think that's a well-directed, well-acted scene. It's just you know, one of my favorite sequences of the film
1: all of the above. I think that's I'm glad you brought up that sequence. I had forgotten that one. That that is that's such that that is again one of the sort of architecture of the reveal that works so well in this movie that so many spy movies get wrong.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll be right back but first our credits.
1: The next reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Jacob Pietras, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at the-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. All right, Um,
0: this is kind of a sequels and remakes conversation. Uh, Yeah, I mean, obviously there's the TV show um, that we've talked about, but did you know that there was a Mission Impossible movie from the TV show?
1: Right, it was, it it didn't, like, I don't think it was, it wasn't released everywhere as a film, was it? I think it was just in a couple of countries.
0: Yeah, and it was a couple, you know, we've talked about things like this in the past where it was a, um, a few episodes. Like they released it as a couple episodes. So yeah, it's interesting that um, you know, it's just one of those things. And uh, it, I know that you know Paramount had been trying for a long time to figure out what they could do with this franchise, but that was one of them. And 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 then to the point where they even tried to release another or make another movie around, like right before they did the the nineteen eighty eight tv series revival there was a movie that it was going to be a reunion of everybody called good morning mr phelps mission impossible the movie but its budget got so big that they never were able to actually make that one i never saw
1: mission impossible versus the mob and so (laughs) 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 i don't i have to tell you after this conversation i don't think i'm going to go (laughs) seek it (laughs) uh but uh yeah That was it. So uh, obviously, this is a conversation about a lot of movies that we're going to talk about
0: immediately. So uh, beyond those things, Uh, how did it do at award season? It wasn't a big awards movie. It was just kind of a blockbuster, and, you know, those aren't always seen as awards films. But still, it was popular enough to get three wins with 17 other nominations. Interestingly, over at the Razzies, it was nominated for worst written film grossing over $100 million. What a strange category for them to have. I guess they're just talking about crappy blockbusters. Uh, But this film lost to Twister, which, you know, I suppose in the context of them, I would probably also give the Razzie. (laughs) Um, At the Saturn Awards, this was nominated for Best Action Adventure Thriller, but lost to Fargo, which is interesting that it fits into that category, but I I guess I can see it. This film was nominated for the MTV Movie and TV Awards Best Action Sequence for the Trained Helicopter Chase, but lost to Twister for the truck driving through the farm equipment. Over at the PGA Awards, Tom Cruise and Paula Wagner actually won the Nova Award for Most Promising Producer in Theatrical Motion Pictures. Um, So, you know, it had... It, it got some recognition, but uh, largely I think the box office take was probably the biggest award it could get. Well, then let's talk about that. How did it do at the box office? De Palma lit the fuse for this franchise with a budget of $80 million or $153.6 in today's dollars. The movie was a big Memorial Day header, opening Wednesday, May 22, 1996, ahead of the big weekend, opposite the uh, Zucker Abrams, Zucker Leslie Nielsen spoof Spy Hard. This handily took the number one spot-bumping Twister out of the way. Because of the busy summer schedule, it only held the spot for two weeks before getting bumped to number two by The Rock, then number three by The Cable Guy, etc., etc. This did stay in the top ten, though, for nine weeks, Played in theaters for 31 weeks, going on to earn wow. almost 181 million domestically and 276.7 million internationally for a total gross of 878.8 million in today's dollars. This ended up being the third highest-grossing film of the year, behind Independence Day and Twister, landing with an adjusted profit per-finishment of almost 6.6 million. Sounds like mission profitable to me. I see what you did there. That was clever, Andy. <laughs> Uh, is it safe to say, do
1: you think, like, what's your hunch in terms of? Uh, have you already done the numbers for the rest of the movies? Are you that far ahead? Yes, I have done the numbers. Do they just get more profitable over time, like, in terms of apthem? Do you want, uh, I kind of uh, don't want, you to, want to. I want to. Yeah. Because um, I, 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 I think. I want to be, I just want to be surprised a little bit, but I'm just that my hunch is they get more, is there a movie that is less profitable in the run than others around
0: it? That's the question. I don't think they do. My hunch is they all get more profitable. Well, if you're talking about profitable or adjusted profit per finished minute, because profitable really boils down to the, the profit to cost ratio.
1: Yes. And I'm talking about, I'm shorthanding APTHM. I should just say abtham. Because but I, because I know how complex that calculation is, right? That it takes in, you know, how long the movie is uh, in, in addition to everything else that goes into it. So, I'm very
0: curious. Well, I will say, oftentimes in franchises, you know, it goes downhill. Like, it starts high and then it kind of continues dropping. And it really, even in the case of, you know, overall, you know, profitability, like... You know, is it, oftentimes you'll find that the first film is the most profitable, even if the other ones are all still profitable as well. So, not giving anything away, but uh, something that certainly we'll talk about over the course of the next six episodes.
1: Okay, well, here we go. As the train has left the station. The Mission Impossible train has left
0: the station. Stuck in the tunnel. It's stuck in the tunnel <laughs> with John Woo. Oh, that's right uh, it's a fun one I'm looking forward to uh, revisiting all these films and talking about them all should be a great time so we'll be right back for our ratings but first here's the trailer for next week's movie John Woo's Mission Impossible 2
1: Agent Located Good morning, Mr. Hunt. Sorry I barged in on your vacation. Well, Mr. Hunt, I don't quite know where to begin. You know me? No. Should I? She's got no training for this kind of thing. But to go to bed with a man alive, her, she's a woman. She's got all the training she needs. Welcome to Australia, mate this ain't funny the mother of all nightmares is on the loose I don't think I can do it you mean it'll be difficult very well this is not mission difficult Mr. Hunt it's mission impossible difficult should be a walk in the park for you You gotta be kidding. This message will destruct in five seconds. Letterboxd, Andy, you've heard of Letterboxd, it is our favorite social network for movie lovers keep your watch diary up there, your watch list, things you want to watch, make your own lists, uh, uh, rate, review, read others' reviews. It's really fantastic. We love it. And uh, it does have a paid upgrade where you can remove ads and know that you are supporting the Kiwi team that makes this thing happen. And they've given us a code to share with you. And that code is nextreal. What happens is you go to the, the upgrade page and you can sign up for a pro or patron account. Use the code NEXTREEL at checkout. It'll knock off 20% from the total bill for your annual subscription. It does work for renewals as well. If you can't remember that, just go to the slash letterbox. We have put together a little URL there. It'll whisk you over to the checkout page with the discount
0: already
1: intact. Andy, what are you going to do for MI1?
0: This is a fun film i have a good time watching it i end up struggling with uh some of the the characters and the and the elements uh, as i already kind of discussed here like the the little love triangle element of the story i always kind of have issues with um it has some of my some of the characters in this film are some of my least favorite of the franchise but it's still better than the worst film in this franchise. Which we haven't gotten to yet. I feel like last time I watched this, I gave it a three stars and a heart. I think I'm going to go to three and a half for this one because I do really enjoy a lot of the sequences.
1: Yeah, I think so too. It's funny. I had this is when Mission, when I went through and first rated mission impossible this was when i first joined letterbox and i wasn't giving star ratings to everything i was just marking them as watched and so i hadn't ever given it stars or hearts or anything and so this this will be my first star heart watch and i am at 4 stars for this movie it is uh, there are issues that i have with it those aren't deal breaker movies this is this is in its class uh, it is one of, for sure, one of the better ones, and I get a lot of joy out of watching uh, Tom Cruise do his thing on screen. So, four stars and a heart from Pete.
0: Well, that will give it the average of three and three quarters, which will round up to four stars and a heart over in our Letterboxd account. And don't forget, you can visit com slash letterboxd to get your patron or pro membership works for renewals as well. So what did you think about Mission Impossible? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel in our Discord community, where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andy. As Letterbox always doeth. What are you gonna do? I'm going half star. Half star. Wow. Yeah, I thought it'd be fun that's to look. That's really at the low. Of the You're going to see. the
1: bottom of the barrel. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. Okay. All right. Well, why what do you got?
0: I have a half star by Jules, who has this to say: misleading mission was possible. <laughs> <sighs>
1: okay i've got that same vein uh three and a half stars uh this one from 24 frames of nick who says if tom cruise wasn't so weird he'd be the coolest guy to ever exist i'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) i've decided as a result of this i'm going to start apologizing for everything i say i'm sorry thanks letterboxd
0: (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) Slash Audible.
1: It's the way to go. Season 12 was all about catching up on big
0: franchises, some of which were based on books that are on Audible. Series like Twilight, with Twilight, Eclipse, New Moon, and Breaking Dawn all on Audible. Our train spotting
1: series has both Train Spotting and Porno, Welsh's follow-up book that largely inspired
0: T2 train spotting. We've got the three Lord of the Rings books.
1: And our member bonus episodes, The Hustler and The Color of Money.
0: So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on audible
1: producing this podcast is a lot of fun but takes a lot of time we've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content
0: plus they just jam those things in wherever they see fit we listened to you when you said you didn't like them so now we're directly appealing to you our dear listeners Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts.
1: I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to the slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you.
0: So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening
1: to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible.